by downloading or listening to this podcast. You are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hi, it's the premiere episode of Moody's Talks Muniland, the podcast about credit dynamics in U.S. public finance. I'm your host, Nick Samuels, from Moody's U.S. public finance team, coming to you today from my pandemic hideout on the east end of Long Island, and I'm excited to be with you. A successful vaccine rollout would, of course, help. But regardless, the pandemic's effect on municipal credit will reverberate for years to come. Federal funding has helped to support states, local governments, higher education, and other credits through the pandemic and the economy as a whole. Now, a new support package making its way through Congress would continue that help. The current version of the measure provides significant dollars to help states and local governments replace revenue lost during the pandemic and another round of funding for universities. And while we had our show planned in advance, by the time this airs, that measure might already have been enacted with some changes. Today, after economic and financial upheaval, as the coronavirus took hold in the U.S. a year ago, colleges and universities continue to face one challenge after another, making the year ahead challenging once again, even if students fully return to campus in the fall. We'll do a deep dive on that and more later with Susan Fitzgerald and Michael Osborne of our higher education team. But first, we'll go into the new support package and look at some other federal policies affecting states and higher education, including some proposed by the Biden administration. I'm joined by Pizay Che of our U.S. States team and Jared Brewster of higher education. Pizay and Jared, it's the first episode of the podcast. You're our first guests. You're excited too? Yes, thanks, Nick, for having us as your first guest. Yes, Nick, really excited to be here. Okay, Pizay, Medicaid is jointly funded by the states and the federal government, It's nearly a third of state spending. It's a perennial budget challenge, but it's also been a way for the federal government to provide fiscal relief to states during downturns. And states recently had some good news. So first off, how does the federal government provide fiscal relief through Medicaid? Yeah, so providing enhanced federal funding of Medicaid is really a quick way for the federal government to provide aid to states through a mechanism that's already in place. Because of the pandemic, we saw unemployment rise significantly across all 50 states, and Medicaid enrollment rose along with that. So what the federal government did through the Families First Coronavirus Response Act was enact a temporary 6.2 percentage point increase in federal matching funds for Medicaid. This temporary increase is in place for the duration of the public health emergency, which technically needs to be renewed every 90 days. Okay, so that makes sense. What's the new good news for states? So the recent good news was that in January, the Department of Health and Human Services informed state governors that the public health emergency would likely be in place through the end of this calendar year. So what this does is provide a level of certainty to states that they'll continue to receive the increased Medicaid funds from the federal government at least through the end of this year, which would be through the first half of fiscal 2022 for most states. So states are now able to build these funds into their budgets going forward. And how significant is the aid to states' bottom lines? Do some benefit more than others? 
definitely the benefits vary across states depending on their total Medicaid spending. So based on estimates by the Kaiser Family Foundation, the enhanced federal funds would amount to nearly 10% of Michigan's general fund revenue. For a few other states like Missouri, New Hampshire, Alaska, and Mississippi, those funds amount to over 6% of revenue. So these are significant amounts that can be directed to other budget priorities. Yeah, 6 to 10% is quite considerable. So in addition to Medicaid, the federal government also recently said that some of the COVID-related costs that states have incurred will be reimbursed at higher rates than they previously said. So what does that mean in terms of helping them cope with the economic effects of the pandemic? So what this will do is will help states avert cuts to other functions like K-12 education and all those other social services. So that's definitely good news for downstream entities like public schools and also higher education. Okay, so speaking of higher education, Jared, let's turn to that now. The relief package moving through Congress includes additional direct aid for higher ed. What do we know about that aid and what would the credit effects be? Yes, the current federal relief bill that is working its way through Congress includes $40 billion of funding for higher education. This funding would be in addition to the support that was provided in prior relief bills enacted in 2020. One important note is that about half of that $40 billion is required to go to individual students for emergency financial aid purposes, which was a provision in prior relief bills as well. Obviously, if enacted, this additional aid would be beneficial for the higher education sector, which has faced a number of challenges since the start of the pandemic. Okay, so let's look a little bit longer term. The Biden administration has outlined ambitious plans that would fundamentally transform higher education. What is it that they want to do? Yes, the Build Back Better plan outlines several higher education proposals, which, if enacted, would have a significant impact on the sector. The proposals that we believe would have the largest impact are those directed at the Pell program and proposals that will provide free tuition to students. The Pell Grant Program is the largest federal grant program offered to individual students and is designed to assist them in subsidizing their education costs. And this includes costs beyond tuition, room and board, textbooks, etc. Biden's plan proposes a doubling of the current maximum award, automatic future inflation adjustments, and an expansion of the plan to more middle income earning families. The two free tuition proposals outlined by the Biden administration include free community college for all students, and the other proposal would provide free public university tuition for families earning under $125,000. So that's really significant. So assume that they pass in close to the form they've been proposed. What does that mean for higher ed as a sector? Yes, that's correct. The Pell expansion would be broadly positive for the sector, potentially increasing enrollment and decreasing institutionally provided financial aid. It is important to note that the the Pell grants can be used at both public and private universities as long as they are eligible to enroll Pell students. The impact of the free tuition programs is potentially positive for community colleges and public universities due to potential boost in enrollment. However, it's important to note that the details are still quite scant on the mechanics of the proposals, including how tuition setting would be affected. 
which would ultimately determine its overall effects on the sector. Also, I'd like to note that private universities and colleges, specifically those with less brand recognition and wealth, would be negatively impacted by such a proposal, potentially further pressuring enrollment and in institutionally provided financial aid. Okay, so speaking of financial aid, there's also talk of student loan forgiveness, and that's another big deal. If implemented, how's that going to impact universities? Yeah, first, I don't want to diminish the human element of student loan debt forgiveness. I think we are all aware of the stories that are out there of individuals that are struggling to pay off their student loans. But when we think about it from a higher education sector perspective, we do not believe the proposal, unless it's coupled with reforms for current and future students, would have a dramatic impact on the sector. On the margins, you could see potentially some short-term enrollment boost from individuals that felt their loans were prohibitive to attending a graduate program or re-enrolling after discontinuing their studies. Okay, Pizay and Jared, thanks so much for being our very first guests. We'll keep watching these issues. Now to discuss universities' financial fortunes in the year ahead, welcome to Susan Fitzgerald and Mike Osborne. Susan, the last year has brought unprecedented challenges for higher ed. What do you think you'll be telling me a year from now if I ask you how the sector's doing? Hi, Nick. If I were to look forward a year from now, I think I'd probably be saying that overall the sector made it through the pandemic relatively successfully. It was able to adjust more rapidly than we would have expected to what was a real shock to the system. And that was in part because the universities took fairly rapid actions, both to adjust their academic experiences and their expenses. And of course, the federal relief um, that we just talked about helped as well. Um, however, I'd also think that I'd be saying that the pandemic has some really long legs and it will be leading to what will continue to be more fundamental challenges across the sector. Some universities a year from now are going to be thriving. Others will be really struggling, and the vast majority will just be um, kind of surviving, chugging along. As of now, however, there are a lot of uncertainties that are going to play out between now and a year from now. Okay, so you're talking about uncertainties, and certainly one big looming one is a broad return to campuses. So, Mike, let me turn to you. What's what's happening there? Yeah, hi, hi Nick. Well, universities, I think first and foremost, their number one priority is to get students back on campus. These large campuses are, are built to host students. They have these you know, massive student housing complexes that are being underutilized. And, you know, spring enrollment has mostly held steady following a, a, a fairly large decline in fall enrollment, but students are feeling online fatigue, and I'm sure parents are feeling the same too, and, and, and just the same, want to get their students back on campus. So I think there's a lot of incentive to get students back on campus. Some universities, like the University of California, for example, have uh, already announced plans to have students back on campus uh, this fall, but it's not a foregone conclusion that things will get back to normal. So this fall, while it may look a little, say, better and, and, and different than last fall, uh, the experience will still be tempered by some of the safety measures that we've all become accustomed to. Right. So we're in that season where high school seniors are finding out where they're getting into college and they probably want to get out of their houses. So what are the overall risks for higher ed right now? 
Right. I think the number one risk and sort of what I you know, just mentioned is this, um, you know, getting back to campus. And so that's going to rely heavily on uh, the vaccination rollout, getting students vaccinated, staff, faculty, getting everybody feeling comfortable. But if not, and the, the pace is not what is expected, you know, that could really affect longer term enrollment for, for many schools that, you know, prior to the pandemic were already experiencing some, some enrollment challenges. So, so getting back to normal, getting students back onto campus, um, that's going to eliminate some of the risk uh, for, for, for universities. You know, the, a prolonged K-shaped recovery would, would continue to disproportionately affect students from low-income households and the universities that largely serve them. And, and that would be those uh, universities with more of, a, of an access-oriented mission. There's certainly still some uncertainty around state funding, you know, state budgets, what those budgets will look like in the next year, two, three years as they recover um, and how that might impact public university funding. And then there's this, um, you know, potential investment market uh, downturn or, or let's call it volatility that could impact uh, the value of, of, of university endowments. It could impact philanthropy. So these are all things that budget offices are paying attention to. And uh, we are as well. Okay, so Susan, in your recent sector outlook, you predicted that operating revenue would be down 5 to 10%, big numbers. Do you think that's going to hold up? Or since then, do you think some green shoots are, are coming up that will alter your thoughts? So the, the 5 to 10% still holds for this fiscal year, and that uh, which ends on June 30th for most colleges and universities. Um, if the next federal relief package passes, the losses are more likely to be on the lower end rather than the higher end. And then, of course, as we look to next fiscal year, um, it really depends on all of the factors that Mike just articulated, uh, the return to campus, what happens with state funding and what happens with gifts, um, philanthropy and the investment market. OK, so you also recently published a report on how universities are using their balance sheets as a tool, and there probably are positives and negatives in that. Can you comment a bit more on, on what they're doing? Absolutely. So one of the positive credit environmental factors has been continued market access and low interest rates. And those have allowed universities to issue new debt that they're using to shore up liquidity, and that provides a buffer to the volatility that they've had. So that's been positive. Others have refinanced debt at lower interest rates, so that provides for some budgetary savings. And others have um, refinanced debt, and they've pushed out principal payments that maybe would have come due this year or next year. And that also provides some immediate budgetary relief. So, so that's on the positive end. On the longer term side, of course, they're going to have to pay that debt back, right? So any newer deferred debt is going to have to be paid back, and that could place some pressure on budgets in the out years. Okay, so Mike, do the factors that Susan just talked about help tell us which universities are better placed to ride out the pandemic's turmoil than others? Yeah, I, I think it does, Nick. And, you know, in addition to the market access that Susan just mentioned, you know, that's going to um, align um, well with these larger um, uh, comprehensive universities that have really managed well through the pandemic to date. And, and those are universities that typically have uh, a strong brand with, with a national and even global student draw. They have um, uh, diverse uh, and, and, and strong business lines. 
And um, these schools largely entered the pandemic from a position of, we'll say, you know, fiscal strength or, or even balance sheet strength. So there's a lot more sort of flexibility embedded into those business models. But it's been a different story for many of the smaller, less wealthy private colleges that rely heavily on tuition revenue. And so if less students are showing up, um, it, it really um, impacts their budget in a, in a more significant way. Um, and so those schools, um, you know, have struggled a bit more, you know, and I would even layer on that some of the smaller, more regional public universities, those that serve um, um, uh, maybe lower income students, that um, uh, those schools have fared a, a little less well than their larger uh, flagship or land grant peers. Um, however, having said all that, uh, the federal aid, the federal stimulus packages that have flowed through the, the CARES Act funding and, and, uh, and other funding has really helped uh, support um, you know these budgets for for these smaller schools that have uh, you know really been impacted by enrollment shortfalls. Susan, one last question. So many students have taken online college classes during the pandemic, but one lesson for me doing remote kindergarten is I definitely want my kids to go away to college. So is online college going to be the new normal after the pandemic, or will the old normal? be normal? No, I, th I think that the new normal um, will be a, a, a mix, right? So um, if students want to take fully online classes, there will be options to do that. If they want to take hybrid types of courses, there'll be options to do that. And if they want the traditional residential experience, that will exist as well. The strength of the U.S. higher education sector has always been the diversity of types of institutions. So students have been able to pick from, um, you know, a community college to a private liberal arts college to specialty colleges like art schools to really large, comprehensive um, research universities. And that diversity is still going to exist. But layered on top of that, they'll be able to choose how they want to study. And, and that's going to be good for students as consumers, um, more options. It's going to be good for employers. There's going to be more different types of um, credentials and certificates and ways of, of doing lifelong learning than there has been in the past. Um, again, So again, good for consumers as students as consumers, good for employers. I think for, for colleges, it's a double-edged sword because it gives them more opportunities to expand their programs and to reach new markets, but it also will lead to kind of more competition and shifting market share and the, the need to be really innovative and market responsive going forward. That's, that's so interesting. Susan and Mike, thanks so much to you both. That's all for the premiere edition of Moody's Talks Muniland. We'll talk with you the second Thursday of every month. Stay tuned.